and welcome to another edition of Tim Talk. I'm your host, Tim Allrand, and thank you for joining me today. I hope you're having a great day wherever you are, and I am very pleased to welcome back to the show Dr. Sophia Caudill from Bull City Psychotherapy. Dr. Caudill, welcome. Thanks so much, Tim, and this is also an episode of Sex in the Bull City, our podcast for Bull City Psychotherapy. I am Dr. Sophia Caudill, and I'm really happy to be here with you today, Tim, and everybody who's listening. Awesome. Thank you very much. So a couple of weeks ago, we were talking about isolation. And during that conversation, I asked the question, why is it that we are so afraid to be alone with ourselves? We distract a lot, Facebook, a lot of different things. And you said, well, it's your concept was original grief. And I asked what that was, and you explained it, and the answer uh, sparked a lot of interest from the listeners. I probably had a half a dozen plus or more emails about what is original grief and are we going to do a follow-up. So that's what we're going to talk about today, and thank you again for being here. So refresh our memory. What is original grief? Well, I'm super excited. I'm going to answer that, but I'm really excited to be talking about this today because... I've done some grief research the past few years, and I've expanded on some other people's work. And um, and I'm, so I'm just really happy to be talking about this, and I just started writing a book about grief. So this is like great timing to get me motivated to keep writing. Awesome. Yeah. So, um, so original grief is the grief we experience, and it comes from the awareness of our earliest emotional woundings. And that can be something like... Um, the awareness of knowing that no one kept us safe or cared for us as a small child, um, knowing that we did not have um, a safe and loving childhood. It also could be something that would sound like, um, I'm so unimportant that no one even ever noticed me when I was younger. Original grief usually, well, not usually, always, comes from our early childhood. It, it can certainly extend into um, older childhood and adolescence, but these are these are almost um, pre-verbal feelings that we have that really lay the foundation for um, really everything we experience the rest of our lives and also how we connect and relate to people and what, what we think about ourselves in relation to others. So you say you say pre-verbal. So for example, if if there's a child that comes into a, a situation or a relationship that was not planned or wasn't necessarily wanted and the baby doesn't receive <clears throat> excuse me a lot of attention or holding or nurturing can that be the first trigger absolutely okay. um i have several clients who somehow know that they were unplanned mm -hmm. Um, I have, and, and that really is is incredibly damaging for for for, for a lot of people to know, um, and I think it's it has a lot to do with it's not just the knowing, but it's also how they were treated and and how they felt for um, a very long time in their early childhood. It's not like just the knowing. I mean, for instance, I pretty positive I was not planned. Like, mm -hmm. I think my dad told me that. And I was like, well, I don't, right, why do I care about that? Mm -hmm. And um, and I don't really care <laughs> because I'm here now. So, right. But that's because I was loved and I have a pretty he healthy sense of myself. Mm -hmm. But to someone who um, was told they were unwanted 
on, on more than one occasion or even once. Someone who was told they were unwanted, who was shown they were unwanted, who was never nurtured, comforted, or loved. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, really, these are like, this is for like, before we even learn how to speak to, you know, we're really sort of seeing how other people get treated. To have that awareness of, I'm, I'm not even <clears throat> lovable. No one even pays attention to me is really damaging. I know, like in, in my, my personal situation, uh, I don't think I was uh, planned because there's like a five-year difference between my, my brother and myself and my other siblings were very close in age and then another five years. So clearly something happened and here I am. Um, and I remember as a child, I did not have a very close relationship with my mother. Uh, my sister, who was, I think, probably eight when I was born, like all of my pictures, everything in my life, like she was my mother. She became my nurturer. I never really was very close to my mom. So is it like I, I didn't think about it, like, oh, maybe I wasn't planned or I wasn't necessarily wanted. I knew I was very close to my sister growing up. Is it that kind of thing? It is that kind of thing. And I love that you're asking that question because the way that we find our original grief is is really through a lot of very deep work. It's not like we're just going to walk into a session or somebody's going to pick up my book one day and go, oh, here's my original grief. I mean, they're going to have to read the book, be in therapy, and drill down a lot till we find out, <clears throat> excuse me, what your original grief really sounds like. Because original grief is a very quiet, it's a very quiet voice. Mm-hmm. It's not something as... Um, as noticed as saying, oh, well, nobody loves me. Like that's kind of, you know, that that's really mm-hmm. in the forefront of mm-hmm. our brain. It's really very quiet, learned. Um, it's like basic, tiny awareness mm-hmm. um, when we're really small people. It's, mm-hmm. it's small feelings mm-hmm. that are quiet. Mm-hmm. It's the quiet underlying foundation of no one loves me. Right. So can it also be brought on by uh, traumatic events like uh, uh, sexual abuse as a child or uh, a horrible uh, if you if you you know you lose a parent abruptly or you in a car wreck or something horrible happened can that yeah exacerbate it well absolutely make it worse for sure but the way that trauma and grief work um, at least in what I've been seeing is that trauma is actually really <clears throat> on top of grief so once someone reprocesses and understands their trauma and they've really worked through it and they're okay, they don't, they don't get, you know, re-triggered, there's still grief to process underneath. So if someone is sexually abused, for instance, um, the abuse itself is trauma. The grief underlying that is that, oh, why did nobody care enough about me to keep okay. me safe? What's wrong with me? <clears throat> What's wrong with me that nobody loves me enough to keep me safe? Why don't I matter? Something like that. Okay, so uh, the other thing we talked about in um, uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, you mentioned you do a lot of work with sex addiction and things mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. And I said, you know, so while we're isolated, we have these triggers that we haven't dealt with that really have, now that we've sort of been boxed in, have really sort of bubbled to the surface. And sort of that's one of the top layers, but you're saying all the way down to yeah. the very, very core of our being. Do we all have it? Does everybody have original grief? And if so, how do you how do you know? Well, how does it manifest itself? I, I think that's a really good question. Boy, I'd love to know that answer. I mean, obviously, I can't say definitively that everyone right, has right. it, but my sense would be that, yes, that's the case. Um, does everyone's original grief sound as, quote, severe and traumatic and serious as other people's? Definitely not. 
I know people who have original griefs from being in really healthy families, but simply because they were the firstborn and other kids were born after them, their siblings, mm -hmm. and they didn't get enough attention. And, and you know, as, as little kids, our little kid mind, the way it perceives um, stimuli and incoming information is different than as an adult. Mm -hmm. But that person, very smart, successful, well-adjusted person, still was able to um, misconstrue that experience of being the oldest child into being, I'm not important anymore, and, and mommy and daddy don't love me. Mm -hmm. I'm, not, I'm not as well-loved as my siblings. Mm -hmm. And that obviously wasn't the case, mm -hmm. but that's what the little child mind really perceived. So that in comparison with someone who is severely sexually molested compared with someone who is told regularly we didn't want you to even be alive in this world mm -hmm. you can kind of see how they're all different mm -hmm. but the severity of original grief is is relative it still feels as as completely painful and demoralizing and just you know it's it's like all of our we can't even anchor into ourselves with with this kind of grief yeah, you're right. This is not fun and sexy, but it is no, very, it is very it's important. Shiny work. It, it is very important. <laughs> so we we have this experience as uh, as preverbal uh, childhood. So we somewhere we have filed this away that maybe I wasn't loved, I wasn't safe, you didn't care enough about me to take care of me, and we proceed with our life and go on. Meanwhile, this is planted deep within us. H how does it show up? throughout our lives, either as adolescents and into adulthood, and certainly, I guess, in our relationships. Uh, yeah. Most everything, I mean, you know, we all get triggered, you know, kind of in small ways all the time, every day. But the, the main way that our, our triggers really show up are in our most intimate relationships. So partnerships, siblings, any kind of familial relationship, children for sure. Um, and also really good close friends. It can it can happen. We're really just friendships in general. It doesn't have to be close friends. Um, so that's when, you know, the way I think about it is that's when people see the good, the bad, and the ugly of us. But they see more of the ugly because we feel more comfortable to show them our, our ugly parts. And so, um, you know, certainly with COVID going on, everyone is triggered around the world at the same time. And that's, that's going to naturally create more issues with people because we are all triggered. But in our relationships, um, what I've been seeing in my work, and I do a lot of couples work as well, is when partners have issues, um, those day-to-day -day triggers immediately track back to original grief. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, and once we start working with those schemas and modes that we can identify of, oh, I remember when this started with my mom and my dad or my grandparent or my family or whoever was raising me, then it's a lot easier to depersonalize the day-to-day -day trigger with the partner mm -hmm. and really start seeing that, okay, this is what my brain knows. And so now I can grieve this and understand it and move forward with my partner. So it sounds like you know, if we're walking around with this seed inside of us all of our life that I wasn't loved, I wasn't safe, I wasn't really wanted, and it's, would you say it's in the subconscious or is it just there and we just don't acknowledge it or is that, is that the same thing? I think that it's, it's in, 
it's probably in our unconscious, our subconscious, and it's but it's in our it's on our very quiet awareness. And it's really when I mean this is what I find to be really shiny about grief work. It's when we have this deep grief awareness that's really seeming to be unlocking our patterns of behavior and relationships and you know negative feelings that are created from this pattern not being addressed. That once we have the deep awareness then we can finally do something about it. And, and it's just making these connections and there's specific you know, therapy that we do also. But being able to have this deep grief awareness to, to say to ourselves, oh, my partner, I totally know why my partner, trig- I'm triggered by what he or she said. It's not because of the way that they said this to me. It's not about how, how we fill the dishwasher together. It's never about the content. <laughs> right. It's about, it's going back to my experience when I first felt this feeling when I was four. Right. When, in this situation, it's, it's tapping into my original grief. So that, that to me is like really hopeful. And I'm seeing couples do absolutely amazing work. And even people who are not in coupleships, but just having this deep grief awareness being able to move through life and be prepared for future relationships, but knowing where our deep triggers come from is incredibly empowering. So I've heard it said, and again, I've spent a little time on a therapist's couch in my life. So I'm just, <laughs> you and me both. This, yep. this, this might be from my situation. I don't know. It could be. <laughs> so, is it true that we marry one of our parents? And if so, do we marry the, the parent that wounded us the most because we're trying to get it fixed? Is this kind oh of along the same lines? This is so funny. It's funny <laughs> you're asking me that because I married my mom first and now I'm married <laughs> to my dad. I'm like, what the heck? So, um, you know, I think that I think a lot of us do. First of all, I definitely see that we inherently find our opposite. Uh-huh. Like rarely do we see two pursuers together. We were talking about this this before. We do actually see withdrawers that are t- uh, that are together. Um, but two pursuers together doesn't happen as often. I was right. telling you my first marriage was with two pursuers, and I was like, that's the easiest relationship I've ever been in. I didn't have to do anything. It was great. Yeah, do, but, do you mind, so I, I know you and I know what those are. Can you mind just a uh, quick description oh, of pursuers sure. and withdrawers? Do you mind? Yeah, so, um, yeah, pursuers, uh, we are the people that are just, you know, always wanting to be touchy-feely and be connected and how can we be in relationship deeper, those kinds of things. And withdrawers are um, no less invested in the relationship. They just do it differently. So just like the name says, they're a little more standoffish, maybe a little more shy is another way that, that they might be described by laypersons. But, but ultimately what happens is to a pursuer, what that feels like years on end, it feels like um, not getting love. Right. And, and that feels really, really badly. Right. And the thing is, is that withdrawers um, usually, I mean, I don't want to say this all the time, but the trend seems to be that withdrawers are withdrawers because they, did also, they also did not feel like they were loved safely as children. So maybe they were neglected some. And, and neglect does not have to be anything serious. Um, for instance, my husband, I'm sure he won't mind. Oh, I better not say that. But anyway, I know people. <laughs> oh, we're going into some bad areas here. Yeah, <laughs> I know people who, um, who come from great families, right. great successful families who, you know, clearly if, if they were reported to social services, there's no neglect at all going on. Sure. Um, but when there's like 
something that's emotionally not freely given, that's going to still be perceived as neglect. Mm -hmm. And so that can also be how people turn into withdrawers. It does not have to be with huge trauma or abuse by any means. Mm -hmm. But but we typically end up with the opposite of, of how we operate. And I think that's like God's little ha-ha <laughs> funny joke for us. Right. Yeah. So do we do we spend do we spend our life trying to unconsciously fix this original grief that sent us and we don't know we're looking for it in, yeah. every, in, every, in every relationship that we go to? I mean, is that kind of... I think that... Um, I think your question is important, but I'm going to break it up into a couple of different answers. So I think we spend our life when we are unconscious. Mm-hmm. Um, living a conscious life is incredibly difficult. It's, it's, it's also in, essential. Um, so when we're unconscious, we don't really know what we're doing. We're kind of like, you know, bouncing around, just getting triggered and and reacting to our triggers. So I think, yes, when we're living unconsciously, we are probably trying to heal old childhood wounds, probably heal that original grief in all the wrong ways. And the reality is, is that nobody else can fix our grief or fix us. It's work that we have to do. We have to do like very deep, effective reparenting work ourselves. Our partner can't fix it. And um, no matter how hard we, we pursuers try to make them do it. Um, and so the other thing is, I think in relationships, um, yes, we absolutely trigger each other's original grief. And I think when couples, again, this is really new work I'm doing. I mean, the the only other work that I know about original grief is John Bowlby, and he's the creator of um, attachment theory. So he's, um, you know, incredibly important uh, in this area. Um, but I don't know that there's been any, any, I don't know that he did anything about couples work. But yes, we do um, trigger each other in our relationships. But again, our partner can't fix that. We have to have that deep grief awareness and be able to, to work on it ourselves. Mm-hmm. Then if, if two people are really committed to each other, they're going to understand each other's triggers and and really make a concerted effort not to trigger each other in the ways that they know that's the other per- person's hot button issues from early childhood. Mm-hmm. So, as a child, if we're not safe, we don't feel wanted, we don't feel loved. It sounds like that we would grow up just very needy. But I, 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 I that's one way. Okay, so that's so, so codependency can definitely be a way that um, that 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 shows up. So pursuers would sort of fall in that category mm-hmm. of being a little more codependent. Um, but codependency, um, that word has really changed and evolved over the decades, and now codependency also includes um, avoidance. So avoidant really? behaviors are codependent behaviors. Yeah, if you look on the. Um, the CODA website, Codependence Anonymous mm-hmm. website, there's a, a list of characteristics and patterns of codependency. It's like low self-esteem, controlling, avoidant. Um, and I added one to that list on my on my honorary website. That <laughs> I added blaming to that because I think blaming is another way that we're codependent. So the way I define codependency is any outside focus. Uh-huh. So the, the definition has changed right. over what it used to be. Um, and by the way, I do a meeting every Thursday on a website called In the Rooms, and okay. the meeting's called Codependency, Grief, and Relationships. We talk a lot about this. Um, but codependency used to be just a very narrow uh, view of typically a, a woman, a wife, who was trying to control a husband's 
alcoholic drinking, right. and it's really evolved and changed over the decades. Interesting. We were we were talking earlier um, about a book that I'm, I'm I'm always reading a book. So right now I'm reading "Hold Me Tight: Seven Conversations for a Lifetime of Love" by Dr. Sue Johnson. And we were discussing earlier before we started recording. It seemed like at one point we were sort of being told in the world that we we needed to stand alone, we needed to be independent. And now this book I'm, I'm reading, I'm going to uh, just read a quote real quickly from it. The drive to emotionally attach, to find someone to whom we can turn and say, hold me tight, is wired into our genes and our bodies. So we are hardwired to connect. Mm -hmm. Our brains are hardwired to connect, absolutely. And so... Um, Dr. Sue Johnson, um, her work is based in attachment theory with John Bowlby, who I mentioned a couple of minutes ago. Um, absolutely, we, we do know through neuroscience, um, which is really helpful that we have the ability to really see how the, how the brain fires and what's happening in the brain in relationship. And yeah, we are hard, hardwired to connect. And um, so even if we say we don't want to be in a relationship. We say that we can be independent and be on our own and we don't need anybody. We can say that like in our conscious, rational mm -hmm. brain, but our, our, our brain, like with our old memories, um, is still going to always be pushing us somehow towards uh -huh. others because we do crave that connection. So, so we, and during this particular time of isolation and COVID when people really cannot connect. I know mm -hmm. you and I have talked about uh, maybe doing a, a, a podcast yeah. on dating during COVID, which fun. I think would be a lot of fun because yeah. uh, I've, I've had some interesting uh, comments about that. But so here we are, this thing is inside of us and we, we, we know there's something that we don't feel quite right or maybe we don't feel like everybody else or we think everybody else's life is better than ours sometimes or I would be happy if I had this or I would be happy if I had that. Really, if we we gotta we gotta drill down, drill way down, <clears throat> yeah. Um, and that took me a long time to figure out when I was coming up with all of this work because the way that people usually will arrive to the office or what we hear in our everyday lives is what you just said. I'm I don't feel worthy. Why don't I get these breaks and they get those breaks? I mean, a lot of that sounds like basic codependency. Mm -hmm issues, which is fine, but it comes from a foundational place. And so really drilling all that down and it takes some time to figure it out. I just did an eight week workshop. I think it was eight weeks mm -hmm. um, with some women about grief, a grief workshop. And then I would say definitely in eight weeks, we got there. We probably could have gotten there in five or six weeks, mm -hmm. um, but it definitely takes time. People have to be committed to it. They have to be really willing to do the work. And again, the other thing that I've found is important is all the other issues that are sort of the top layer issues really need to be taken care of. So people have to be doing their work. They have to be willing to go deeper in their self-awareness and, and do the hard work. If there's any trauma that needs to be reprocessed, they need to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a lot of ways to do, to do this work. It doesn't have to be um, with a therapist, but um, with, a, with a competent therapist, it can just go quicker. And, you know, I have not trained any therapists on mm -hmm. this yet. So I'm just sort of like, this is like hot off the presses. I'm just now kind of doing it now. Nice. We're, we're on the cutting edge. Yeah, I, yeah. I like that. Um, in one of my early podcasts, uh, I always, I generally start with a question uh, to sort of kick it off. 
And um, one of the questions I asked was, if we are what we eat, are we also what we think mm. at one point? So a lot of self-talk, and the mm -hmm. theme of my podcast ultimately is believing is thinking. I've, I'm a huge believer in the power of positive thinking, and there's now some neuroscience that goes along with that about how we train the brain. Yeah. And, um, you know, there's the whole law of attraction and all these vibrations, and there's hundreds and so forth out there that at some point I want to uh, use the podcast to explore. But we're walking around with original grief, and so we're constantly, we don't feel loved, we don't feel wanted, and we're telling ourselves we're not as good as everybody else, and so we sort of manifest our own life that way because of this, right? Yeah, I think kind of that sort of. it depends on how much in your conscious um, you're living. Okay. And it also depends on, you know, when people decide they want to do some work. Um, you know, I find that a lot of people um, sort of have these thoughts kind of very quietly that are happening. and We may not really register, mm -hmm. but then something about our late 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, maybe early 40s, but it's really 40s, 50s, and 60s, people are so serious and com committed, and they really are ready to do this very deep, deep, deep work. This is this is not fluffy counseling. Mm -hmm. um, this is deep stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and you've got to really be willing to go places that you don't, that you've been trying to, you know, numb out. Stay for, away from. For Stay decades, from. yeah. Yeah, sort of the, what they used to call denial. Yeah. You're, you're denial yeah. about a river in Egypt. Denial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, other question. You mentioned the word reparenting. Yeah. So if I'm a parent out there and, yeah, I know in my own, my own life, uh, you know, my, my parents didn't always get along that well. They stayed married for 64 years, whether, whether they should or not. <laughs> yeah. uh, but they were married for 64 years before they both passed. And I just thought, you know, I want to be, be a different parent. I want to be a different kind of parent. But you don't have the tools to do that. And so if I've got a listener out there and you know, maybe they are expecting a child or maybe they've got a child and they want to do something different, but they don't know how. Yeah. So how do we reparent ourselves? How do we how do we learn differently? Do we do we do, do we all get into therapy? Are there books? I mean, is it? A... I'm gonna do a little bit of work on this, but reparenting is incredibly important. But what I think is is really helpful is um, working the Adult Children of Alcoholics and Dysfunctional Families program. It's called ACA for mm -hmm. short. It's a free twelve step program. Um, it includes basically all people on the planet. Um, I didn't come from an alcoholic family per se. We certainly had addiction. I think alcoholism just skipped a generation uh -huh. with, with them. But we certainly apply. So any family that has any dysfunction at all um, belongs in that program. And, and that's where some people learn how to do healthy reparenting. It's called like... Um, learning how to reparent with your own loving parent. And anyway, that's a great resource. But then also therapists like me, some of us do something called schema therapy, um, which is a really, really um, incredibly effective and research-based therapy um, from a, a, a psychologist called, um, his name is Dr. Jeffrey Young. And um, anyway, a really powerful, non-judgmental therapy that's it's so wonderfully loving um, for people to take 
these assessments and then see on paper, oh, these are my tendencies. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly what it is. And then with your therapist, you learn how to do some effective, healthy reparenting for you. And like, it's kind of like based on what you didn't get, what you didn't get. But that actually going through all those processes, both of those programs really helps us be a much better parent. Like, I wish I'd known all this, like, 20 years ago like if we all could like have kids when we were in our 60s right oh my god we'd right. be like great parents <laughs> is yeah. that why grandparents are so effective <laughs> so, yeah they've, they've realized that really a lot of this other stuff that we focus on is not important and it's really about just loving well you know, it's interesting you say that because uh you know in some of the very minor uh, reading i have done you know i, I kind of go back and i don't want to get too far off a tangent but i have a point in this particular um uh, statement that the 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 founders, if you will, of psychotherapy often are referred to as Freud and and Carl Jung. Correct. Uh, I mean, I know there are other people, but prior to say 1930, 1940, no one was going to therapy, right? I don't know. I mean, I don't. Maybe I don't... not called therapy per se. I don't remember that. I should know this. I'm Greek, and I would think that we Greeks did something. Okay. Um, I don't know. I mean, I know the, the the idea of human psychology has been around for centuries, but in like terms modern, of modern, maybe is what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that's, that's yeah. sort of it. So, so my my point in that is that, you know, my parents had no no idea of original grief or what they might be doing or not doing because right. their parents didn't know and their parents right. didn't do. So now we're in a modern culture, a world of lots of information, not just psychology, but literally physiology of the brain and how our emotions and our thoughts and, and these things happen. Um, you had mentioned uh, very briefly, and we're going to sort of wrap up here in just a second, but um, you had mentioned you can do the work. You don't necessarily have to have a therapist. i personally think that it's a good idea to, to, to do the work with a, a professional therapist uh, because it is that important. But if someone is like, I'm not really ready to go to therapy mm-hmm. and there's not a lot of information out there on original grief, where where should they look? Well, they can, um, that's a good question. They can, um, yeah, there's not anything out there on original grief. They can come to my website and there's a few posts I have there. My website is www.bullcitypsychotherapy.com. Um, you could probably also find it just by Googling my name, uh, Sophia Cottle. Um, and I'm in Durham, North Carolina, so that might be one way. But then also um, the meetings that I do on In the Rooms, that website, every Thursday at noon Eastern time, it's called Codependency, Grief, and Relationships. That's a place that we really talk a lot about different types of grief. And I do grief workshops. Um, I help people drill down and figure out what their original grief is. We also do effective reparenting work in there, and people come up with their exact scripts. We also do schema therapy assessments. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's a really affordable way to okay. do um, to figure out the grief work. And then I have other tips that are free for people, like community meetings okay. and online meetings, that kind of thing. So if I'm, if I'm listening right now and these things are running through my head, I'm not going to walk into you and we're going to get to original grief first session. There's, it's, it's a process, right? I mean, it takes time. It's, yeah, I mean, doubtful. I mean, unless someone has, like, really been paying attention to themselves. Okay. I mean, they might they might be there, sure. Um, but usually we can still drill down a little bit more. Um, yeah. And so without doing this type of self-work, um, are we destined to become our parents if we're not careful? 
Oh, wow. That, I, mean, there, there, I have I, no idea. That's such a loaded question. There, well, there's there, I mean, I, I, a, a movie, uh, Jumanji, that had uh, Robin Williams in it. And uh-huh. he, of course, is, is, he spends his life in the jungle and he's got a bad relationship with his father. But in the movie, he's parenting a child. And the, the line is, 20 years in the darkest jungle and I became my father anyway. <laughs> So it, if we don't get this fixed, or are we destined to be our parents regardless? You know, we I, know we marry one of them or both true. of them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm a double winner. Um, so you know, I almost think it's like, I, 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 aren't we just going to be products of our parents and family anyway? Like, uh, even if we do this work, I mean, and some of that's genetically predisposed to us. You know, so a lot of it's environmental. I don't know what that percentage is, and. If you know, that's great. I don't know. But I I mean, (laughs) yeah, it's anybody's guess probably. But I think that, you know, I don't know that it's so bad to have parts of our parents because, you know, maybe we turned out pretty great. And so it takes a lot of greatness, I think, to even be having this conversation, listening to this conversation, caring about this conversation. I mean, like caring about any kind of self-improvement at all is really special and kind of the way that I see all of this generational work is that we always do better than our parents before us and they did better Mm -hmm. than their parents before them. But to make huge change like this, um, I've heard it takes seven generations to make a really huge shift um, from trauma and abuse and neglect. And um, so when I started doing this work, I've been in recovery many years, but I didn't start doing this deep, deep, deep work until, I don't know, 10 years ago. Um, After I'd realized all the mistakes I made with my own child, Uh I bought him the ACA big book. I was like, Uh you got your work cut out for you. (laughs) So, you know, it's it's lifelong work. And, And I think people do get so much more. They're not afraid of this deep awareness the older that we get. Right. So it isn't something you come in seven sessions and you're fixed. It's something that you've got, you are aware of, and it's always with you, but you're, you're able to handle it better? Absolutely. Yeah, okay. that we have, we have more effective tools. And, we, and our triggers don't like scent, let our hair on fire anymore. You know, it's kind of like, oh, I've, I was just triggered. Okay, that's fine. Normally, uh, I know where this comes from. Now I know that I'm going to give myself this and I'm just going to keep on going with my day. Right. right. Yeah. You know, I hear, I hear so many people, I have, you know, I have friends, family members, whatever, they're always, you know, I am this way because it was mom's fault. It was dad's fault. It was like, okay, well, at what point does it become your fault? Right. And you are who you are because of where you've been. Good, good, bad, or indifferent. So uh, interesting, interesting thoughts. Thank you very much. Is there anything else that you would like to share with us before we wrap um, up? I don't think so. Um, well, the only other thing I would actually add would be if anyone is interested, you're welcome to contact me at Sophia at BullCityPsychotherapy.com and ask me questions. You can find out when my workshops are happening. I also do grief intensives for couples. And um, there's another kind of grief that we didn't talk about, and that's called ambiguous grief. And that is the grief that we experience when we lose someone who is still living. So that could be, for instance, a divorce or addiction, 
is also going to bring a couple of kinds of ambiguous grief. And so that workshop for couples happens to be really, really helpful and effective. Um, but other than that, um, I'm your grief girl. So if you have any <laughs> questions or, or anything about that, feel free to contact me. Well, I, I appreciate your time. And uh, you're right. It's, it's not a very fun subject, but it is a very important subject and can really change someone's life and their relationships and everything going forward. I think next time, I think we probably will do dating during COVID. <laughs> Something to like lighten a, it up. That sounds yeah. like a really fun topic. <laughs> but I appreciate you being here. And uh, thanks so very much. This is Tim Talk. I hope you have a great day. Thanks, Tim. Thanks for interviewing me on um, Sex in the Bull City. Bye.